And please do keep your Bibles open at 1 John chapter 3 on page 1022. There's an outline of the talk you can follow along in the middle of your bulletin. Uh, so you might like to take that out uh, as well. Let's, uh, let's pray together as we turn to God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made us your children and that you have given us your Spirit to abide in our hearts, to teach us and to change us. And Father, we pray now that as we consider your Word and as I teach it, that your Spirit would help me to teach with faithfulness and clarity and that same Spirit would be at work in our hearts, teaching us to love you and to love one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder what you would say is the defining mark uh, of the Christian. Uh, imagine you, you go into your workplace or you go to your college or you go to that, that, that big family gathering and you're, you're looking for the Christian that's there. What's going to make them stand out uh, in the midst of the crowd? Uh, maybe probably not the, the, the cross around their neck. Uh, probably not that they forgot to take off their name tag after they left church. Uh, probably not their Christian T-shirt uh, that they're still wearing. Uh, what's going to make the Christian stand out uh, in the crowd? Well, for many non-Christians, the answer, I think, is that Christians love one another. Uh, my wife was converted while she was studying uh, abroad in Australia at the University of New South Wales. Uh, she was invited along uh, to a wedding dinner, actually by uh, one of the members of our pastoral team now. And uh, one of the things that, that struck her as she went along to that dinner was, that, was the love of the Christians there. They didn't swear. Uh, they didn't drink. Uh, they didn't gossip about uh, one another. All they, do, they, they genuinely cared for each other. And, uh, and as she joined their fellowship, she experienced that love for herself. She'd get lifts to and from church uh, every week, uh, prayers and support uh, in her struggles. Uh, uh, they'd eat and have uh, meals together. And in that fellowship of love, God used it to help her to come to know the truth. Now, I wonder how many of us could share the same testimony of how we have come to know the Lord Jesus. Love is to be the defining mark of the Christian. As we just sung, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Now I remember the, the striking difference between uh, studying a computer science degree uh, and studying at Bible college. And it, uh, it wasn't just that I was suddenly dealing with words instead of numbers and letters. Uh, both places had, had readings and exams and assignments. Uh, both had their own stress, I guess. But the most remarkable thing about studying at Bible college was that people didn't care about all the things they usually do, about, about marks and, and getting ahead and, and, and getting the great job or things like that. What, was, what drove the people at Bible college was was Love. And so someone would work hard at an assignment, they'd go to the library and they'd find out all the references and then they'd type it up in an email and share it with everyone else. Or before the exams, they'd write this summary that would take them a whole week to prepare and then share it with everyone else. Love is the defining mark of the Christian. Christians love like Jesus loved. And this morning we see the presence of such love 
ought to give us the assurance that we really are children of God. Well, that is uh, John's big aim, if you remember, in this letter, uh, to give us the assurance of eternal life. John, 1 John 5, verse 13, uh, we read these words, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, John wants to give us uh, assurance that we are really saved, that we really are children of God that we have a a fellowship with God now through his Son, uh, a fellowship that will continue on uh, forever. Uh, And if you remember, to give us that assurance, what John has been doing is to give us a number of tests or or, or evidences, if you like, to help clarify whether someone is a Christian or not. Uh, And so far we've had three tests in the letter. We've had the test of truth. Uh, Do we affirm that Jesus is the Son of God, that, that, that he came uh, in the flesh to die for us. Uh, we've had the test of obedience uh, last week. Do we obey the commands of Jesus? Do, do we practice righteousness? Do we, do we recognize that, that sin has no further place in the life of the Christian? And finally, we've, we've already touched on the test of love. Do we love one another? Now, of course, the three tests are related, uh, and it's not good enough to just kind of get two out of three and think uh, that that's a pass. Uh, You can't have have theology and obedience but not love. The the true Christian must pass all three. The the command is to to love one another. And it's to the, the third of those tests, especially, that we turn this morning. We were introduced to it last week in chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see, John wants us to be just very clear in our mind who is a child of God and who is a child of the devil. Uh, And he plans to assure us Uh, not just by our theology and and not just by our Christian obedience, but to assure us by the presence of love in our life that we really are children of God and not of the devil. Well, we're at point one uh, on our outlines. Children of the devil hate like Cain. And and in the passage, John really, he, he wants to draw a stark contrast between children of God, children of the devil, between uh, someone who is truly has life and someone who does not. And he does that uh, by drawing a contrast between Cain, who took life, and Jesus, who gave his life. Now look with me at verse 11. From this, uh, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, as we we say in the song, Jesus commanded love. It's not an optional extra in the Christian life. It's a a command. It's a necessary mark uh, of the Christian. And to make the point, he contrasts us with Cain, verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. You remember the story from the Old Testament reading. Uh, Cain and Abel make their offerings. Uh, Abel's offering is accepted by God because it is offered with faith. But Cain's is rejected. Uh, And and rather than repenting and turning to God, heeding God's warning, 
Cain is filled with jealousy and rage. He invites his brother out into the field. And in an act of cold-blooded murder, he slaughters him. Or as John tells us here, literally, he butchered him. And that is hatred, isn't it? Hatred attacks another for our own self-benefit. Hatred removes those who stand in our way. Hatred uh, gets rid of anyone who makes us not look as we wish. And John says, look, that kind of hatred is characteristic of the child of the devil. For the devil himself is a murderer. The devil himself hates Jesus and hates Christians. The devil himself is full of envy and wants the praise that belongs to Jesus for himself. Uh, of course, uh, it's not just the act of murder, is it, that, that, that evidences hatred. Uh, but even, even the desire for, mur- uh, for, uh, for murder, even, even the, the fact of anger, Jesus says, uh, even constitutes murder. Uh, you might remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And Jesus' point is that, look, hatred and murder, it doesn't just, it doesn't just uh, end at the physical. Hatred begins with, with anger. Hatred begins when we, we don't get our way and we want to get revenge. Whether we, whether we say it or not, whether we act on it or not, in Jesus' mind and in John's, That kind of thinking, that selfish, angry thinking, well, that is murder. And that is exactly what children of the devil are like. Now, John wants us to focus on why Cain killed Abel. Again, verse 13. uh, Verse 12, sorry. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. See, John wants us to see that one of the things that that characterizes the non-Christian world is that they despise those who insist on living God's way. Now, now of course, it doesn't mean that all non-Christians are like really terrible people or something like that. Uh, It's not that a non-Christian can never be friends with a Christian or never show loving things. That's not what John, John means here. But it is true, isn't it, that for one who's not living with Jesus as their Lord... There is something deeply offensive about the Christian. Something that they they do not like. Because simply by living a righteous life in front of you, it shows what your own life is like. A Cain-like hatred is characteristic of the world in which we live. So John goes on in verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. See, just as... Just as Cain hated his brother, so the world hates Christians. Uh, so often if a, if a Christian stands up and says, look, marriage is between a man and a woman for life, don't be surprised if the world gets angry, if the world ridicules, if the world attacks you, even violently. Or as, as the Christian in your workplace, you stand up, you refuse to take bribes, you refuse to, to falsify the contracts. Or don't be surprised if you're hated by your colleagues. 
or you, you refuse to, to, to go through the red traffic light just because uh, there's no other cars that are coming along at the time. Well, don't be surprised. All the cars behind you will be there beeping their horns in sheer hatred of you. John's Gospel reminds us that in this world live people who put Jesus on the cross. Jesus was the ultimate righteous man. He only ever lived in love and humility and gentleness, and yet that Jesus, full of such gracious character, our world crucified. Jealousy and rage. The the religious leaders uh, uh, handed him over to Pilate. Pilate, in an act of self-love, sent him to be crucified. The disciples in self-protection ran away. And the soldiers carried out the cruel command. It was the devil's hour of, of darkness, as in hatred and murder, the Son of God himself was killed. And that's, that's the world in which we live. A world in which there are, if someone is not a Christian yet, they are an enemy of Jesus. They are someone who does not want his rule. And we should not be surprised if that is expressed towards Christians. Now, Jesus taught the same thing, of course, in John chapter 15. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. A bit later in John 17, Jesus says, I have, as Jesus prays to the Father, I have given them your words, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. See, here is the mark of the non-Christian a refusal to submit to Jesus as Lord that is expressed in a rejection of what Christians stand for. Again, and it doesn't mean that they will reject in every case. You will no doubt have many friends who are non-Christians. But deep in the heart, there is a refusal to want Jesus to be Lord. And so here is the test of the Christian. Do you love your brothers or do you hate them? The child of God loves, the child of the devil hates. Now, the way to know whether you've, you've passed from death to life is whether or not you love and serve your fellow Christians. It is the test of love, and it's there in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life uh, abiding in him. Uh, I wonder what you make of those verses. It's all very black and white, isn't it? It's all quite extreme, isn't it? You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. You either love people or you hate people. What do you make of this? Well, John isn't very interested in the middle ground, is he? There's no grey in his picture. 
It's either love or hate. John wants us to evaluate our life and see which side we're on. And, and John wants us to recognize if we're not on the love side, then we are on the other side. But his aim isn't really to scare his readers at all. Remember why he's writing? He wants to reassure them. So we're meant to, we're meant to reflect, isn't it? Well, that's not what my life is like. I don't hate people. I can remember times when I've, I've loved people just like Jesus has loved me. In fact, I can think of times when I've been persecuted for following Jesus. And so I know I've passed from death to life. I love what we love one another. And it just would not be possible if I was not a child of God. Well, as we come to, to point two, we see that John has a particular kind of love in mind. Point two, children of God love like Jesus. So if, if Cain is the supreme example of, of hatred and murder, then that characterizes a child of the devil, then Jesus is the supreme example of the kind of love that Christians are to imitate. And we see in verse uh, 16 there, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus alone teaches us how to love. Whereas hatred takes, Jesus gives. Hatred harms. Love sacrifices. And so Jesus lays down his life on the cross as a shepherd for his sheep. And Jesus said, John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Our hymns capture these truths so perfectly. My Lord, what love is this that pays so dearly that I, the guilty one, may go free. Amazing love, oh what sacrifice. The Son of God given for me, my debt he pays, my death he dies, that I might live, that I might live. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shared for us his precious blood. How amazing the love of Jesus for us. He died for you. He died for me when we did not deserve it, when we failed to honor God, when we refused to submit to his rule, when we, we treated our brothers and sisters with disdain, as we lived in selfish rebellion. Of course, we deserve judgment from God. We don't deserve his love. And yet Christ loved us. He gave it all. His, his perfect life shared in a perfect sacrifice, in a most supreme example of sacrificial love. John wants us to see, before you can truly love, you must experience real love. The love of God flooding into our hearts through the cross of Christ. It's only then when we know real love, you know, not, not Hollywood love, not Game of Thrones love, right? It's only when we experience the, the kind of real sacrificial love that gives up everything 
Only then can we learn to love. But notice John's point. If we've truly experienced the sacrificial love of Jesus, then we too will love others the same. Have a look again at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, we are, we are called to real sacrificial love. Love motivated by the cross. Love empowered by the cross. Love that looks like the cross. Love that sacrifices and gives it all for the sake of others. Here is real love. Real love gives. Real love hurts. Real love means giving up the things I would otherwise uh, enjoy for the sake of another's good, sacrificially, generously. Real love means surrendering the things that I value the most to enrich the life of another person. And I am so grateful, as, as, I, as I have been thinking of our church this week, and many of you, the ways that I see this love amongst us. Now, those who would drive or, or even fly hundreds of kilometers to support a grieving brother and sister. There's been many who have done that. Those who give up their time week in, week out to serve sacrificially in the Sunday school, in the youth. Those who, who, who give of their energy to help those in the, the direst of needs. Those who give their money to those who are poor. Real love gives, isn't it? Real love serves. Real love sacrifices. And there is so much of that love amongst us. Praise God. But as we go on, we see that such love is not just sacrificial, that love is practical as well. We read on verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word, not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, real love is immensely practical. Real love walks the walk, talks the talk. Real love sees a fellow Christian in need and acts to meet the need. Now, love is not sentimental. Love is an action and uh, notice, uh, John particularly has in mind here the brothers, the brothers and sisters in Christ, in church, fellow Christians. He's not thinking so much of the world at large here. And notice John has in mind particularly material needs. How can, uh, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, he expects us to share materially with one another. See, real love doesn't just say, look, I'll pray for you and then leave it at that. Real love is not like American politics, is it? Where the, the right thing to say whenever there's something bad that goes happen is, my thoughts and my prayers are with you. But you know very well it's very unlikely that they pray, let alone do anything to help. Words are cheap, aren't they? Actions are real. And so every time we see one of our brothers and sisters in need, and it's in our power to help, but we do not. We live a life. Our faith is a sham. We are hypocrites. How, how could someone who has experienced the rich sacrificial love of Jesus turn a blind eye to the plight 
of, of others. Literally, the word here is to close your bowels. No heart-wrenching compassion. No genuine feeling. No movement of love. It's not possible, is it? If I'm really a Christian, if I've really experienced such love, and I see someone in need, of course, I will act. Do they need a place to stay? I'll welcome them into my home. Do they need transport to church? I'll offer them a lift. Can they not afford to pay for Bible overview? I'll offer to pay for them. They lost their job, no income? I'll seek to support them as much as I can. Real love is like that. It sees a need and it acts to meet it. Now again, as I think about our church this week, I'm I'm just so, there's so much to reassure us, so much to be thankful for. You might remember earlier this year when our, when our church was, was flooded and it was like one meter underwater uh, here in the MPH. Well, one of our church members left their car in the car park. It suffered some pretty serious damage indeed and they could not afford to fix it. How wonderful to see the love of our church voluntarily giving money to meet the need. Or maybe a few years back, you remember the, the terrible earthquake uh, over in Nepal, which affected the families of many of our Nepali congregation members. How wonderful to see the members of SMAC dig deep into their pockets to help, to write letters of encouragement, to give money to our brothers and sisters in need. Or even earlier this year, we, we asked to we send out those coin jars to collect money for the Samaria's Agape School, the Myanmar Chin refugee children. How wonderful to raise 10,000 ringgit just in small change. That's the love of, work, of God amongst us, isn't it? At work amongst us. But it, it's always, we always need to keep our eyes open, isn't it? And to be looking for those needs. Uh, imagine how good it is to live in a family like that, where we, we're all looking out for one another like that. I don't need to just look after myself. I don't need to make sure that my bank balance is sufficient, that I always need to look after everything for myself because I have a church family that I know I can depend on and love. It's worth just thinking about the different groups in church. How could I love them? How could I love the newcomers? Could I, could I sit next to them and explain what is going on during greeting time? How could I love the elderly? Could I, could I park my car down in the Dataran car park so that there's plenty of spaces for them to park in the cathedral? How could I love the sick? Could I, could I visit them or phone them? How could I love those on the fringe? Could, could I invite them for dinner? How could I love those from Cheshire home? Could I hold the bulletin for them so they can sing the songs? How could I love the domestic workers in our congregation? Could I address them by name? Have them address me by name. Talk to them. Offer them refreshments. Ensure that their, their legal rights to a day off, having their own passport, having freedom to go outside, that they're upheld. How could I show love to the other congregations in the cathedral? Could, could I donate money for, uh, for the BM and Iban congregation or the Golden Circle to buy a van so that they can bring more people to church? They're trying to, trying to do that at the moment. Now, the possibilities are endless, really. But the point is clear. 
If we have truly experienced the love of Jesus, it will overflow in love for others. Sacrificially, practically, seeing the need and acting to meet it. Well, what if there are people in our congregation that are not so easy to love? People that we're maybe tempted to actually dislike or even hate, perhaps. How do I love those people? Well, once again, I turn to the cross and I remember Jesus' sacrifice for me. He loved me when I was an enemy. I was completely undeserving. So I pray for his strength to love like him. That's point number two. Children of God love like Jesus. And finally, point three. Children of God have assurance and confidence. You see, as, as we see this love at work amongst us, it, it produces this assurance in our relationship with God. Verse, uh, verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Look, John, John says to us, look, by this you will know. By your love for one another, sacrificially, practically, you will know. You will be assured in your hearts that you are really a child of God. The assumption here is that... that that there are going to be times when doubts come into my heart. When I really do wonder about my, my standing with God. You know, is my faith really real? Does God really love me when I messed up again? Would God really give eternal life to me when I didn't really love that person as much as I should? I did close my heart last time. And John in those circumstances would have us apply the tests to ourselves. Now verse 19, the word is literally, not to reassure, but to persuade, uh, to convince, just uh, cast your mind back to the school days, right? the school debate, uh, and you're on the team, you're trying to convince the panel that, that your case is the right one. And that's, that's the image here, pretend you're in court. Right? Your heart is the prosecutor. You are the defendant, God is the judge. And you bring forth the evidence. Now look at that time I loved that person last week. Look at that sacrifice that I made for that brother and sister. Look at, at that need that I met in response to God's love for me. I would never have done that before. I would have never done that if I was not a child of God, a Christian. And so even as my, my heart stands to condemn me, reminding me of my failures, I can be comforted because... Because God is greater than my heart. He knows everything. He knows the good and the bad. God is sovereign. And God assures me in these very verses, isn't it, that if I love like this, if I'm believing in Jesus, if I'm seeking to obey him, if I'm loving my brothers and sisters, then no matter how, much I, how bad I feel or how many times I mess up, I can be absolutely assured. I am a child of God. Because I would never have loved like that or even cared about it if Jesus was not at work in my heart. 
And so the passage ends in confident assurance. Verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. The, the logic might be a bit confusing at first, but it's actually not too difficult. John is simply saying, if we are assured in our hearts that we are children of God, then we can have confidence in our relationship with him. You see, because if I'm a Christian, then I don't need to earn God's approval. I don't need to do things for God so that he will do things for me. God is not like my boss. God is my father. He loves me. He longs to listen to my prayers. Of course, that doesn't mean he's going to give me absolutely everything that I want all the time just because I ask for it. He loves me, and so he wants to give what is best for me. My, my daughter will happily ask me for ice cream and biscuits the entire day. <laughs> but that does not mean I'm going to give them to her. But sometimes I will because I love her, and I want her to be happy. And so with God, 1 John 5, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we ask of him. Now notice the condition that that's important, isn't it? if we ask anything according to his will. It's, John's not talking about here asking a blank check for whatever you want. God, give me a Ferrari and a luxury, uh, luxury house or whatever other sinful pleasure that I'm after for myself. Right? God promises to give what is good for me, what he wills for me. And so I can have absolute confidence before God as his child. He loves me and he longs to answer my prayers. Now we're told he does it because we keep his commandment, because we please him. It's, it's not saying that we are earning our way into heaven or earning our way into the family of God. He, he spells out what he means by that in verse 23. What is this command that we must keep? Verse 23, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he's given. It's got two parts to the command. We believe in Jesus as our Lord. And we love one another. And as we do this, we have confidence. We are, we are truly God's children. We have fellowship with him. He lives in us. We live in him. Indeed, his, his Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts, assuring us that we really are children of God. That he loves us. And that he is changing us. Here this morning we've seen that love is the essential mark of the Christian. Such love is is sacrificial, it is practical, it is motivated by the cross, it is empowered by the cross. 
And such love can be a ground of our assurance. Again, just imagine a church like that, where, where Christians love one another in that way. What a wonderful family to be a part of. Well, what if this morning this raises more doubts than assurance? You know you haven't really been loving people. Perhaps you come to church and you know your life hasn't really changed. Perhaps you sometimes sense that kind of worldly hatred of Cain. You remember the times you've closed your heart, thinking of yourself. Well, it's possible, isn't it, that those are signs that I'm not yet a child of God. What if that is me this morning? Well, John would have us look upon the cross again. Confess your sins. Ask for his forgiveness. Trust his death. Receive his love. And the wonderful promise is you can have a fresh start. An adoption into his own family. Remember chapter 1? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But uh, if we are God's children, the message this morning is to continue to love one another more and more and as we love one another, be confident you belong to him. Be confident to pray. And be confident you have life. Fellowship with God that will last forever. Let's pray. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you once again this morning for the amazing love that you have shown us in your Son. We thank you for his sacrifice for us while we were still sinners, that he gave it all that we might be forgiven. Father, how amazing it is that you have so lavished your love upon us, that you have made us your children, that we can come confidently into your presence and pray and know that you hear and know that you long to answer according to your good and perfect will. Father, teach us to love one another more and more. And assure our hearts that we really are yours. And Father, if there is anyone here this morning that is not yet your child, we pray that even now your spirit may be at work in their hearts. And that you may bring them to confess their sin and trust in Jesus and become your child or son. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.